0: Well, let's read Mark chapter three, verse, verses seven through 19. We're looking at two stories and I, this morning as I went again one last time through the text, I thought maybe I should have divided it up and done two different weeks, but we're going to try to get through it all in one, one morning. So let's read the text together, verses seven through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, And called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also called or named apostles, so that they might be with him, and so that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonarges, which is the sons of thunder." Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Just because I keep my Bible closed, I never like to do that, because I put everything I'm going to read. It still feels awkward when I... Someday we're going to have a big pulpit where I can have my Bible open in my notes. Well, this morning I've given the, the title of the sermon, Responses to Jesus, Part 1, which implies there's going to be a Part 2. Um, in chapter 3, we are given, at least parts of chapter 3, we're given four different accounts of people's responses to Jesus. This week we look at two of them and we look at another two next week. The response to Jesus from his family and the response to Jesus uh, from the religious leaders. And in a sense as we transition, this is a transition point in the book of Mark, and we transition, it's kind of like we're finally emerging from the weeds with Jesus If you think about the previous sections of Mark that we've been studying in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we were caught up with Jesus in a series of five different controversies with the religious leaders. Five debates with the Pharisees. Debates over who Jesus should be associating with. Debates over whether or not Jesus could actually forgive sins. Debates over religious practices like fasting and how you observe the Sabbath got caught among the weeds in these religious debates. And now Jesus leaves that behind. He he leaves behind the, the synagogue. He leaves the realm of the debate hall behind and he gets out among the people. We hear politicians talk about needing to get away from their offices, needing to get out from behind their desks, and to, to get among the people, to, to, to be with the ones they're representing. And we see Jesus doing that same thing. Although, uh, unlike uh, politicians, Jesus is not doing this as some sort of political move to garnish support. But this is what He has come to do. He has come to be among the people, and He has come, as we saw in Mark already, He came to teach And he came to preach and he came to declare a message that the kingdom of God is at hand. And as I read these two stories and the the stories that follow, I I thought about who it was that Jesus came to be with. And, And I was once again taken aback by the surprising nature of the humanity of Jesus. Mark begins his gospel by reminding his readers and reminding us who this one he is writing about is. And that is that he is the Christ and that he is the the son of God. There are times we need that reminder as well. As we see Jesus in these stories, we can forget who it is, who it is that we're looking at. Verses that we often go to, whether in our time of worship as we're singing songs about Jesus or throughout the sermons, uh, verses that I point us to. But yet, verses we need to be reminded of when we are thinking about Jesus, remembering that He is the image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God made visible. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything was created through Him, And for him, and he's before all things and in him hold all things hold together. He goes on in verse 19 to say that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is who we are looking at in these passages as he is among the people, the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. He is himself fully God. Hebrews 1, 3 describes him as the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power there we see who he is and we see what he does and the power that he has again familiar verses to us but john 1 1 and 3 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made familiar Verses, familiar concepts, but because they are so familiar, we can lose sight of what they're really telling us about Jesus. And they, we can lose sight of the mind-blowing reality of what verse 14 in John 1 goes on to say, that this Word became flesh and dwelt, his, and dwelt among us. Literally, He pitched His tent among us. He, he took up residence among us. He dwelled among us. And notice again in Mark chapter 3 who this us is that Jesus dwelt among. The one who is fully God did not come and he did not dwell among the wealthy and the elite. He he did not come and dwell in palaces and mansions. He came and dwelt among those who Mark describes in this first story as diseased and filled with evil spirits. Reaching out to touch him. They're, They're crowding him in so that he feels like he's about to get trampled. He dwelt among us. The writer of the Gospel of John can use that word, us, because he was one of them. We see him in the second story. He was the apostle, one of the disciples. Just an ordinary person, an ordinary fisherman, but yet one who Jesus called to be his disciple. He dwelt among the ordinary. This one who is the radiance of the glory of God, this one who is the exact imprint of his nature, dwelt among sick men and women. Poor men and poor women, ordinary men and women, those who the world paid no attention to, he did. But the question for us this morning is, what will their response be? How will they respond to Jesus? This morning we see several responses in two different scenes that Mark gives to us. One that takes place at the lakeside. And one that takes place on the mountainside. And those are simply the way we're going to divide this passage up this morning. Jesus at the lakeside and Jesus on the mountainside. First we see Jesus at the lakeside. And again, he has left behind the synagogue. He has left behind the town center. And he has retreated with his disciples. And he has retreated with the apparent goal of, of trying to get away and find time to teach them. And for choosing for himself twelve who would be his disciples or in this passage it refers to him them as his apostles if you look in the other gospels in the gospel of luke for example it is this story this place in the chronology of jesus where jesus gives the sermon on the mount or luke's version of the sermon on the mount so jesus is retreating as he's already we've already seen in mark seeking to get away from the chaos of the crowd to focus on teaching his disciples but as we've also seen in mark the chaos follows jesus When we picture Jesus and and picture his earthly ministry, we might picture Jesus holding a, a child. We might picture him sitting on a rock. And for some reason, as I thought about this, we might picture some lambs around him. I think we might see that in some storybook, children's storybook Bible. And in my mind, I have an image of Jesus. I think it was on my wall as a child of Jesus playing soccer with some kids. And we're given those images to show the relational aspect of Jesus's ministry. But in reality, Jesus' ministry was not one of quiet and calm. But as Danny Aiken says of this passage, it is one of mayhem and bedlam. As I read through this passage, I was directed to the verbs that are used in verses 7 through 12. And as you read through them, and as we reread through them, we're going to go through them one by one. These action words, try to picture in your mind what is taking place. The first thing that we see Jesus doing is that he withdraws with his disciples to the sea. The sea is the Sea of Galilee, so my point should probably be the seaside and not the lakeside, but NIV says lake and and lake sounds better, yeah, lake sounds better than seaside. At least in my mind for some reason. But anyway, Jesus withdraws from the pressures of the, the controversies with the disciples to take some time alone. Justin Senesi, the pastor of Hickory Ridge, is in Israel, was in Israel this past week. And he's been posting pictures of his time there. And one of the pictures is of the Sea of Galilee. And it's just this beautiful scene of the sun rising over the water. And the water and the lake is still. And as you look at that picture, you can almost sense the the peace and the tranquility that would be experienced if you were there. And if our story ended in verse 7 with this phrase, this is the kind of image you would have. You would have that same sense of peace and tranquility. At last, a time for Jesus to breathe, a time to simply be together with his disciples, him and his close friends, a, a time to rest. Maybe some of you might think you could use some time at a lakeside yourself right now. In fact, as I was putting this together and thought about the number of people I knew who were not going to be here, there are many who have retreated to the lakeside themselves. A time to get away from the daily grind of life and a time to take a break, a time to catch their breath. Jesus withdraws. but Then we read that although Jesus withdraws, the crowd follows. And not just a crowd, but a, a great crowd. And Mark goes on to tell us that this is a great crowd that comes from all over not just from the local towns and villages, but they have traveled many miles to be near Jesus. Every direction on the compass is represented here, and they all come from the various places, some traveling a hundred miles to find and be near Jesus. If we were to dig deeper into these locations, we would see that this is a mixed crowd of people. This is Jews and Gentiles who are here. Jesus is starting to attract even Gentiles to Himself. And we see here the fulfillment of what was said of the coming servant of the Lord, the Messiah, in Isaiah, where it says that it is a too, it is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Instead, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He said, I'm not sending my Messiah simply for the people of Israel. But I am sending my Messiah for the people of the nations, of the whole world, that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Not only does this cause us to look back as we see Jesus attracting all peoples to himself, but it causes us to look forward to Revelation where we are reminded of who is gathered around the throne of Jesus. And that is people from every tribe, every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before Jesus. The lamb. And we get this picture of these two things. Looking back and looking forward, we see these realized in Jesus here at the lakeside. But Jesus withdraws, the crowd follows, and the crowd comes to see Jesus. But not only do they come to him, but they come to him to such a degree that Jesus feels as though the crowd would crush him. They came to him, and they feel, Jesus senses that they're going to crush him. Again, we're taking note of the action words, trying to picture what is being revealed to us and what is being, the story that is being told to us, the scene that is being painted for us here at the lakeside. The crushing is, is so real that Jesus calls for a boat to be made ready because he is worried that he's going to get trampled by the mobby. Jesus calls for a getaway boat. Now, he might have used it, wanted to use it for a pulpit as he does in other places to, to back away from the crowd so that he can preach to them. It does not say that here in Mark. We almost get the sense that Jesus wants a boat to get ready so he can get away to do what he came to do and be with his disciples. One sermon I read and on this passage labeled the, the message, Jesus pressured Jesus, which is a twist on the hymn, Jesus Precious Jesus, precious Jesus. Jesus pressured Jesus. And we see that pressure mounting as we make our way through Mark and now as we make our way through this scene. Not only the physical pressure of the encroaching crowd, but but try to imagine the emotional pressure that is mounting. We saw earlier in Mark, Jesus sneaking away in the early morning hours to get some time alone just to pray and to be with the Father. But before long, before even the sun rises, the disciples come, they come and find him, and they say, there's many sick people that need to be healed, come on back. Then later on we see Jesus at the party with Levi celebrating the conversion of Levi, and the, but before we know it, the Pharisees are peeking in the window and they're criticizing Jesus. And we all know how criticism can wear you down, especially when it's something that you're excited about, and in comes this sharp jab, this critical jab. Jesus is criticized then for picking grain on the Sabbath, for, for eating and for, for for his disciples eating at least, for satisfying their hunger. Then he's criticized for healing a man on the Sabbath. And now at last he's withdrawn to the lakeside. But even there, when he arrives, he finds a crowd waiting for him and he finds himself at the center of this crowd with sick people reaching out, just hoping so that they hoping to touch him so that they might be healed. Jesus pressured, and this reminds us again of the great truth of Hebrews chapter 4, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our experiences. But we have one who is tempted in every way as we are, but yet without sin. Maybe some of you this morning feel as though you are being crushed by the pressure of life. You're looking for your own getaway boat, to put some distance between yourself and the constant demands of your life. In her book, Gift from the Sea, Anne Morrow Lindbergh wrote this. The life I have chosen as a wife and mother entrains a whole caravan of complications. And I promise Kayleen did not write this. <laughs> I thought about this as I found this. but It involves food and shelter, meals, planning, marketing, bills, and making the ends meet in a thousand ways. It involves not only the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, but countless other experts to keep my modern house with its modern simplifi- simplifications. Electricity, plumbing, refrigerator, gas stove, dishwasher, radios, car, and numerous other labor-saving devices devices functioning properly. It involves health, doctors, dentists, appointments, medicine, vitamins, trips to the drugstore. It involves education, spiritual, intellectual, physical, schools, school conferences, carpools, extra trips for basketball or orchestra practices. Tutoring, camps, camp equipment, and transportation involves clothing, shopping, laundry, cleaning, mending, letting skirts down, and sewing buttons on, or finding someone else to do it. It involves friends, my husband's, my children's, my own, and endless arrangements to get together. Letters, invitations, telephone calls, and transportation hither and yon. Constant pressure, mostly just the mundane day in and day out of life, but yet it leaves us exhausted and run down we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And this is good news. He knows. And Hebrews goes on to say that because he knows, that should lead us to confidence to draw near to the throne of grace so that we might find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Jesus feels as though he's crushed. And Mark goes on to say that those he had healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. That word pressed can be translated as mobbed. I don't know if anyone gets bothered when your personal space is invaded. Jesus' personal space was invaded. And then we see that not only are the diseased pressing to get him, or pressing against him, sorry, but those possessed with demons, with evil spirits, see him. And the response to seeing him is that the ones possessed fall down and cry out. The New Living Translation puts it this way, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking. Again, forget the tranquil, peaceful scenes you might associate with. The New American Commentary says that this is a scene of great commotion involving pushing and shoving, shoving, and we can add to that shrieking and falling. Well, those are the verbs as we've and give us a picture of this passage. But what are the responses? If this sermon is entitled, the Responses to Jesus, what are the responses that we see just in this first story? Alistair Begg gave three responses, and I'll borrow the headings from him. The first response is one of obstination. The religious leaders and their obstination. Now, we might not see the religious leaders in this, but it is because of the religious leaders, and it is because of them being obstinate, unflexible, unyielding in their response to Jesus, That Jesus is forced to withdraw or desires to withdraw. This is the response of the religious leaders to Jesus. Unflexible. Unyielding. Not willing to listen to Jesus. We see the crowd. But we see the crowd in their fascination. Earlier in Mark, the words that were described to, the the words that were used to describe the crowd's reaction to Jesus was uh, amazement and wonder. They're fascinated with Jesus. But their fascination doesn't seem to lead to worship. It doesn't seem to lead to a right response to Jesus. They're fascinated with His miracles. They're eager to get to Jesus for Him to meet their physical needs and wants. But they fail to see the greater need that Jesus is there to meet. Their spiritual need for Him to be their Savior. And we can see ourselves in that same category at times. Fascination, but yet failing to ever sit and worship Jesus. But even in this story, and even in Hebrews 4, we're reminded that Jesus wants us to come to him with our needs, with our wants, with our desires. We want to come to him for help. But yet do we come to him in an attitude of worship and adoration. The religious leaders and their obstination, the crowd and its fascination, and the evil spirits and their confrontation. Now, again, these are borrowed from Alistair Begg. But if there was anyone who got the response to Jesus closest... It was the evil spirits. I was tempted to change this heading from confrontation, and I'm going to say I didn't do this, and this isn't right, but from confrontation to adoration. Even though I know the evil spirits did not adore Jesus, the word that is used for them falling down before Him is the same word for prostrate. They prostrated themselves, or caused the ones they were filled with, or that they possessed, to prostrate before Jesus, and they cry out and declare that He is the Son of God. Yet even in that, we know that they are not, they are not worshiping Jesus. They are not rightly responding to Jesus. And we see that in Jesus' response to them. Well, there's much more we could say about this first scene. And again, perhaps I should have divided this into two different sermons. But let's move on to see the response that we find on the mountainside. We go from the lakeside to the mountainside. And we don't know how Jesus got there. If he I and mean, his disciples jumped in the boat and took off, we don't have those details. But now we move to the mountainside. And it's on the mountainside where Jesus calls and he appoints the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And just as we can overlook the details and miss the significance of who this is that is standing in the midst of the scene at the lakeside, we we can miss what is happening here on the mountainside. Because what is Jesus doing? What is the significance of, of this action, this moment in time with Jesus appointing these 12 apostles? In a sense, Jesus, not in a sense, in reality, Jesus is is launching the church. He he is beginning a movement here on a secluded mountainside and here with 12 unlikely candidates. He is beginning a movement that will one day span the globe. And one day we are here now, very far from this mountainside as a part of the church. J.C. Ryle said the names of a few Jewish fishermen are known and loved by millions all over the globe. While the names of many kings and rich men are lost and forgotten. How, ira- not ira- how crazy it is is it? There's probably a better word than crazy. But that we remember these obscure fishermen. Well, why do we remember them? How did God, how did Jesus use this ragtag group of fishermen, farmers, Jewish patriots, and tax collectors and use them to begin the church? We see it in verses 14 and 15. First, he calls them to be with him. Jesus calls us or calls them, but in turn, he calls us to be with him. Then he sends us into the world for him. And we are sent with authority by him. This is the right response as opposed to the wrong responses. Responding to the call to be with him. Answering the, the, the command to go out for him. And going out as ones with authority given By him. We'll work through these quickly. With him. Verse 14. And he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Just think about that statement. Jesus called these twelve men. Now we we don't know if these were the only twelve. If you look in Luke's Gospel, it seems that he calls these twelve out of a larger group of disciples that are there. But he calls these twelve men, and he calls them The first thing he says is so that they might be with him. Now, some have taken this to mean that Jesus needed friends. Now, in his humanity, Jesus did experience relationships. He did experience a need for relationships. But if Jesus needed friends, I mean, just think about this. If Jesus needed friends, he probably would have picked a better group than these. One we are already reminded of in this, and this this name tag kind of trails him through Mark. Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus. And just a side note, Thaddeus doesn't show up anywhere else. Another gospel says Judas, and we think that some people think Thaddeus changed his name to Judas because he did not want to be associated with that name. Not that, I'm not that Judas. He just said, let's go with Thaddeus. Jesus could have picked better friends than these, but th- this verse does not show Jesus' need for relationship, but it shows the disciples' need relationship with Jesus. If anything is to be done for Jesus, if anything is to be accomplished by the power of Jesus, then it must be preceded by and sustained by a relationship with Jesus. The Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples that they can do nothing apart from from him. And he puts it in such a way that it's very clear because a vine cannot grow, a branch cannot grow fruit unless it is connected to the vine. And he says, so with you, unless you are connected to me, unless you are with me, you can do nothing. What was true of the disciples is true for us as well. If we want to do anything for Jesus, then it must come out of a relationship with Jesus. In the book of Acts, when some of these same apostles are brought before the Jewish council, the council look at these men and they, they cannot figure out how these uneducated, these somewhat dim-witted, ordinary fishermen speak with such boldness and authority. And the only conclusion that they can come up with is that they are those who have been with Jesus. Is there anything about our life that the only explanation people can give is that we are those who have been or too often are we more concerned with doing than being. Doing things for Jesus rather than being with Jesus. Now, doing things for Jesus are very important. Jesus sends them out. But it must come out of a relationship of one who has been with Jesus. I know I am guilty of switching those two things around. My responsibility as a pastor, there's a temptation to neglect the being with Jesus in order to do things for Jesus. But when I do that, I notice that there is an emptiness in my doing. It feels forced. It it feels contrived. It feels powerless because it's something that is attempted merely on my own power. Jesus says in order to do things by my power, you must first be with me. And it is from that relationship that you can do anything for me. The disciples were not trained and prepared simply by being students of Jesus. They were students of Jesus, but more than that, they were trained by being with Jesus. John, in the letter of 1 John, says that what he is writing to you comes from one who has been with Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, he's describing Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Notice the, 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 the physical senses that are spoken of here. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, we write to tell you about him. We are those who have been with Jesus. Now we can't be with Jesus in the same way that John was with Jesus. But yet the Psalms invite us to taste and see that the Lord is good. There is something about our relationship and our experiential aspect of our relationship with God that is, is, is as intimate and as real, as tasty Jesus calls us first to be with Him. Be with me. But then He says to be with me so you can go out for me. He might send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. Yesterday afternoon I was reading in Charles Spurgeon's autobiography and Spurgeon wrote this. He says, I don't see, I do not see how our sense of oneness to Christ could ever have been perfected If we had not been permitted to work for him, if he had been pleased to save us by his precious blood and then leave us without anything to do. We should have had fellowship with Christ up to a certain point. But there is no fellowship with Christ that seems to me so vivid, so real to the soul as when I try to win a soul for him. Spurgeon says if if Christ would have called us to be with him and have relationship with with him, but then never given us anything to do. There would be something lacking, something missing. And I read that and thought how often we are content to leave that behind. Spurgeon says, but there is something in working for Christ in which I taste and see, which I experience a relationship with the Lord that I don't experience otherwise. Jesus calls us to be with him so that we can go out for him. And notice in these verses that he calls us or calls the apostles First and foremost to the apostles, he calls them to do the very things that we just read him doing. To preach, to cast out demons, Another, another gospel says adds healing to it. He calls them to do the things that they've seen him doing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, Luke writes, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I know that sounds like a very strange verse to be a favorite verse. And I'm not just like that kid who says Jesus wept is his favorite verse because he gets extra points for memorizing a number of verses and that's an easy one to memorize. But I love this verse because think about what Luke is going to go on to write. He's writing the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, Jesus, at least physically, leaves the scene at verse 9 in chapter 1. But yet Luke says, in the first book, in the Gospel of Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do, which implies that he's going to continue the story about what Jesus is going to continue to do and to teach. But Jesus leaves the scene in verse 9. How does Jesus do and how does Jesus teach? He does it through these apostles and through the church. The continuation of Jesus' doing and teaching is done through the church. And it is done by Jesus through those who go out for him. And that leads us to the final point. With him, for him, by him. This is the need, why we need to be with Jesus, why we need to go out for Jesus and doing the things that he did because we are going out under and through his authority. Jesus doesn't simply give them instructions on what they are to do, but he gives them the power to do what they needed to do. He sends them out under his authority. And that power is essential because the task is impossible and the message is improbable. The task that is being assigned to the disciples is impossible. Of rescuing men and women from the powers of darkness, it is impossible. It is too difficult for them. And the message that they are going to be sent out with, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, is improbable. Paul tells us the message sounds as foolishness to some and stumbling blocks to others. It's a message that makes no sense. But at the same time, he tells us that that message is the power of God unto salvation. Because in that message, there is an authority. There is a supernatural power. The task is impossible. The message is improbable. That is why it must be done in the authority of Jesus R.H. Hutton in his work, Theological Essays, commented on the need for the power of Jesus when he said, The chosen apostles themselves misunderstood and misinterpret their master. Peter, after being told that his confession is the rock on which the church would be built, is spoken of as a tempter and an offense to his master, as one who savors not the things of God, things which are of God, but of those which are of men. John is twice rebuked, once for his revengeful spirit, once for his short-sighted ambition, Judas's treachery is predicted. All the twelve are warned that they will fail at the hour of Christ's trial. And that warning, like the more individual prediction addressed to Peter, is certainly most likely to have been conceived after the event. And then he ends with this. In a word, from the beginning to the end of the Gospels, we have evidence which no one would have managed to form, forge. No one could make this story up. That Christ deliberately chose materials of which would have been impossible for anyone to build a great organization unless he could otherwise provide and continue to provide the power by which that organization. end. We don't look at this scene on the mountainside and say, man, look at what Jesus is doing. Look at these leaders that he is calling. Look at the way that he is establishing this. We look at this scene and say, this is going to fail unless Jesus is involved. And this is how 2,000 years later, we are a part of a global church that started on a mountainside with 12 unlikely and ill-equipped men. In the book of Acts, Gamaliel, looking at these uneducated fishermen and the movement that is starting in Jerusalem, advised the Jewish council to be careful in what they're about to do. He said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be found even opposing God. And here we are. And the plan has not failed. And it has not been overthrown, nor will it, because it is not carried out by the power and authority of man, but by the power and the authority of God and of Jesus Christ. It is carried out as those who are with Jesus, sent out for Jesus, and empowered by Jesus. Well, we've... We've looked at two scenes. Both of these scenes are somewhat unspectacular and very ordinary. But yet in them we see the extraordinary power of God and the spectacular person of Jesus Christ. And we are again reminded of what Jesus does in the midst of the ordinary and the unspectacular of life. In the moments of our lives that seem like nothing but chaos and confusion, he brings his presence. And through the ordinary and unspectacular vessels like these 12 apostles, he reveals his power. And that is the good news. And that is the good news for the world. So let us live in light of that news and let us spend our lives proclaiming that news. Let's pray.